the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program, a brand new week, but the last day of July. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, whatever you have a question about, whether it's what the Bible says, what it means, what we believe as Christians and why, or maybe it's just something that you're going through uh, in your life right now. We'll do the best that we can to give you some help and hopefully encourage you to stand with and to stand for Jesus. Our phone number for your live calls is 340-9585. 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button and you'll be connected directly to the studio. I hope you had a great weekend in church. Uh, I always am interested. I I hope that people got saved at church. We had some people get saved uh, here yesterday. We had a bunch of other people who came forward to respond to the context of the message that was given. Uh, Good day. Lots of people here. Uh, We had an unbelievable afterglow Friday evening. uh, I'm still trying to work through how profound it was for me personally. A great, great time. Quick reminder, and then we'll get to the questions. Uh, Tonight, ladies, Sweet Summer Devotion Series continues. Uh, The speaker tonight will be Elise Shank. Now, I am particularly interested in what Elise has to say. She's a young woman now, but She was just a tiny, tiny little girl when she came to our church, and she's grown up here, and she's walked with the Lord pretty much her whole life, so she doesn't have this gory testimony to share, Uh, but Elise is, uh, um, she's just been so faithful for so long. And uh, I know that she will be a blessing to the ladies. So uh, that's tonight at 7 o'clock. Pastor Ken will be teaching uh, the men's study. And Pastor Nelly will be teaching the high school age youth as well. All at 7 o'clock. So you can kind of come as a family or at least part of your family. uh, Separate into your different areas. And enjoy. And of course we've got... um, programs for your kids. They're going to learn about Jesus as well. Okay, one more time, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, Our first question is from Drew from our email inbox. He said, Pastor, on the King James Bible tells us that an angel of the Lord would occasionally stir the waters in the pool of Bethesda. The NIV doesn't say that. There is a footnote in the Schofield's commentary which says someone added that verse to explain why people would assemble by the pool. Question. If the 1611 King James says that an angel of the Lord stirred the water, it would seem to me that all subsequent translations would have included that. Are we to assume the King James included a myth? And it's not the truth. Drew, no, that's not a fair assumption at all. Now, here's the difference in the two passages. Um, And by the way, none of the other translations try to hide 
that an angel or it was thought that an angel would come and stir uh, the water and the first person in would be healed uh, they included in a footnote and they will just say simply uh, some translations include um, the difference Drew is simply which set of manuscripts are being translated the King James is a great 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 Bible um, for some, it's a little hard to traverse just because of the Old English, but it's a great Bible. They would never include any myth. But what they're doing is translating um, the majority text or the Texas Receptus set of manuscripts. And in that set of manuscripts, uh, it does include that um, that explanation that an angel would come and trouble the waters and, and, and heal the first person who jumped in. Uh, so, so it's clearly a true story. This is not a myth. Um, the newer translations, those especially that are translated from the Alexandrian set of manuscripts, uh, it's not included in those manuscripts. So remember, when we write a Bible, when we have a translation of Bible, we're translating a set of manuscripts. Now, the original autographs, Drew, have long since been gone. But what we have is the overwhelming manuscript evidence, literally uh, thousands and thousands of manuscripts. Uh, But the manuscripts come from different sources. So by putting them all together, we can come up with what we know as a Bible that is reliable, the inerrant, infallible Word of God. So it's it's important you understand it's not one translation trying to, to, to add something that's not true, nor are the other translations trying to take away something. And that's usually the complaint against the newer translations. Uh, the King James and New King James both include that explanation. Um, they're both translated from the, the majority text, the Texas Receptus. Uh, it's just that most of the newer translations uh, come from the Alexandrian manuscripts. One more thought on this, Drew, that's important to understand. Uh, I, I, as most of you know, I'm a, a 1984 NIV man, uh, especially as it relates to the New Testament. I think it is the superior translation of the New Testament, and I think there's not even a close second. So uh, I like that. I qualify the 84 version because the newer versions of the NIV are horrible translations and ought to be avoided. Um, However, having said that, those newer translations often will say the better manuscripts don't include this. Uh, and, And they're equating better with older. The general thought about manuscript evidence is that the older they are, the closer they are to the original source, the better they are or the more accurate they are. And I just find that sort of a fallacious argument. I don't believe that is that is the case. So uh, I it's one of the reasons I think when we are told as Christians to rightly divide the word of God, to study, to show ourselves approved. Uh, I think that's why we have to have multiple translations. That's one of the reasons the Bible programs on your computers are so valuable. We can do things that would have taken uh, hours and hours and hours for people to do uh, in times past. We can do them in, in literally seconds. And and we need to be those men and women who really try to determine what the context is. One other thought about this, Drew, that uh, um, we don't know is true or not. We don't know, and the King James and the New King James doesn't suggest that it really was true that an angel came and troubled the waters. The explanation is that's what people thought, and it's clear that the people around the Pool of Bethesda obviously believed it was true because they were there every day. These huge crowds would gather over and over and over. Those ruins have been um, uh, discovered, and and it's exactly as reported uh, in, in the Gospel account. So uh, whether or not an angel really troubled the waters or not, we don't know. But the people believed, and that's the explanation given to us in the King James. So, Drew, good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Ola that was called into the studio. When Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 22, when they'll be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, did that also include Judas? Um no, the context, Ola, there is Jesus is telling his disciples, um, you will judge the 12 tribes, you will judge fallen angels as well. The idea is that Christians, those of us who are born again, 
uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ, we're going to be, uh, in some way that's impossible to understand until we get there, we're going to be instrumental in judging people. I can imagine, for instance, the 12 tribes of Israel, those who, uh, for example, perished in the wilderness because of unbelief. Um, You know, a Jew is not going to be able to stand up at the day of judgment and say, well, I didn't know because I didn't know Jesus. Uh, I was a Jew and I believed in Moses. I believed in the law. Um, uh, They're not going to be able to say that with Paul and Peter and John and the other apostles there. So uh, we'll we'll be sort of a condemning agent uh, agreeing with the judgment of God. So when he says that they'll be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, Uh, He means, uh, generally, that's a reference to the people of Israel as a nation, as a whole. Uh, It doesn't mean that they will, nor will we, be judging individuals who fell away. That's going to be the purview of Jesus himself. The Bible says, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Very important that we understand that we are going to be a testimony, sort of, you know how in a trial a lawyer will call, uh, 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 introduce a piece into evidence and say, this is Exhibit A. Well, only in some way, that you and I, we will be Exhibit A. Somebody will say, but I couldn't believe, I couldn't see God, so how could I believe in him? And, and he will call Exhibit A, it'd be you and me. Well, we couldn't see him either, but we believe. So the issue is not that we uh, ever believed um, um, in, in the God that we couldn't see, but that we came to a saving faith based on the evidence, and every person is going to be um, without excuse. Judas is going to stand before God, our Jesus, as one of the most accountable people who's ever walked the face of the earth. Truly one of the most accountable. Why? He heard everything Jesus said for more than three years. He saw every miracle and remained unconvinced. He himself was given power by Jesus to do miracles. And that didn't persuade him that Jesus' plan was better than his. And so he will stand before God completely without excuse. He is one of those people um, that Peter describes when he says, deepest, darkest blackness is reserved for them. So thank you. I appreciate that, Ola. God bless you. Still praying for you, by the way. Thank you for continuing to listen to the program. 340-9585. There's a question from our mobile app on uh, from Rich. He says, if a person has been seeking the Lord for direction and they are at an impasse, what do you recommend that they do? Rich, this is one of the key questions that I've ever been asked about how to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We all have been given direction from the Lord. We need to dig into the Word, find out what the direction is. But if you're asking for direction, like, okay, Lord, what am I supposed to do in this situation? Or, or, or Lord, I feel like I'm called to be a pastor. I feel like I'm called to, to do something. Uh, what am I supposed to do? And then, then you hear nothing. Those are times of preparation. Those times when we hear nothing are preparation. And so what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to wait. And while we're waiting, we have to have the faith that God is preparing us. While we're waiting, we have to have the ability to understand that God is doing his greatest work in us before he can do a work through us. I've said this many times on this program and many more times to the church, but we are all on a need-to-know basis with God. And he doesn't think we need to know as much as we think we need to know. So if there's an impasse, and your situation's not directly and specifically dealt with in the Word of God, then we wait for God to open a door. We wait for God to make Himself clear. And, and while we're waiting, we bear fruit. We grow where we're planted. And the reason that matters so much is because if you're faithful in those times when you're not hearing from the Lord, if you're faithful with what you know He's already told you to do, there's so many... This is the will of God for you, passages in the New Testament. If you're faithful with those things, if in these times that you describe riches and impasse, if you're um, sharing your faith with others, if, if you're, you're, you're doing service for the Lord because you love Him, 
if you're involved in a local church and you're looking for opportunities to minister within that church, well, that's effective waiting. And it's in that process when God will be changing you more than you're aware of. He'll be changing you in ways that you can't even begin to understand. All you have to do is trust Him. I know that waiting is the single most difficult thing for most of us. But I look back on 22 years as the pastor here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. And in the times when God seemed to be doing nothing, the times He was the quietest, I now look back with hindsight and understand that those were the times when he was actually doing the most because he was doing those things in me. 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Rich says, It is required that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful. He doesn't just say, in my case, Ron, be a pastor, and okay, I've got a big church, I'm a pastor. No, I had to be faithful in those times when nobody was coming. I had to be faithful in my own home with Paula. I had to be faithful when it looked like I was the most wrong person ever in terms of hearing from God correctly because the circumstances seemed to, to, to contradict what I believed God told me to do. And I was being tested. Will I stay the course? Will I listen to the Lord? I didn't call that an impasse. I now look back at it and see that it was a time when God was preparing me for that very moment when he was going to let me know exactly what the next step is and then say yes. One final thought on this one, Rich. One of the reasons God gives us wives is because we need partners in this walk with the Lord. So in these times of quiet, when there's times of waiting to hear from the Lord what to do, you and your wife stay where you are doing doing what you've been doing. Excuse me, I had a sneeze break there. <laughs> uh, but, but keep doing what you've been doing. And uh, do it faithfully with all of your heart as unto the Lord. Paul writes, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, including the waiting. And your wife, if you have a family, Rich, your wife and family, what they really need is to know that their husband, their father, is a man who won't take a step until he's sure that that step is with Jesus. Rich, good question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Estelle. Uh, Why did God choose the Jews to be his people? Uh, Estelle, the same reason God chose you and me to be his people. God chose the foolish things of the world the weak things, the despised things, the shameful things, even the things that are not. And he chose us to get glory. He, he says to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were the strongest people. He didn't choose them because they were the smartest. They certainly weren't the best looking. They were just sort of a despised people. And he actually started his people, Israel, with an idol worshiper by the name of Abram. And it's through these weak vessels that God gets the greatest glory. And Estelle, one of the things that we need to avoid is falling into the trap that national Israel fell into. You know, they got to the point where they took the calling of God for granted. They began to believe that God called them because they were special, forgetting that they were special because God called them. And I hope that distinction is clear. There's nothing special about me, Estelle, that God called me to do what I do or to be Paula's husband. It wasn't like, well, let me find a husband for Paula. She's precious and and I love her. And he goes, well, let me find the best looking, the strongest, the biggest guy out there, the one who's the most spiritual. He, it was just the opposite. He chose the weakest, the most foolish, in many cases, the most despised. And he did it because that is the way that we get glory. When we start bragging about who we are in Christ and what we've done for Christ, when we start thinking that, that we've kind of got this Christian thing all figured out, when we can judge other people, you're not doing it right, we forget who we are. We're foolish. We're small. 
were despised, were shameful. And God called us and rescued us. And when we really understand that, Estelle, that's when our hearts are filled with such gratitude and overwhelming gratitude. And it'll change your relationship with God forever. So God chose the Jews to bring his son from. Out of all the peoples on the earth, it's almost like God said, okay, who's the most pitiful? I'll take them. I was telling my church, we had a discussion in one of our Bible studies about this, and and I always use the the example, uh, you know, uh, when when I was young, uh, I've always been an athlete. I played college baseball and wanted to play for the Dodgers. But but my joke is that 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 my best sport was always basketball. And so whenever I was in a, a pickup game at a park or even at school when I was new in school, and they were choosing sides for a basketball team, nobody ever picked me. Nobody ever picked me because I was small. I'm short. And we know basketball, it always helps to be tall. So I'd be the last person picked. And then they found out I could play a little bit. And so they'd start picking me. Well, God made me his first choice when I was the least likely to be effective. And that's why he picked Israel. Estelle is even why he picked you. Don't take it personal. I'm sure you're a wonderful person. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak, to shame the strong, the things that are despised, even the things that are not. And I'm glad he chose us. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Matthew that kind of sets my teeth on edge. Uh, nothing personal against you, Matthew. Matthew says, I've been giving at my church because the pastor says, if I give, God will give me more. That hasn't happened. Why? Ooh, Matthew, we're inside five minutes. I detest the way giving is manipulated. Sowing and reaping. I detest the way we've marketed God as someone who, if you give to the church, of course, the church I pastor, God will give more to you. And sadly, that's what's being taught from pulpits all over the world, especially here in our state, our city. The reason it hasn't happened is because it's not true. God doesn't need your money. And certainly God doesn't owe you anything. He's already given you everything by rescuing you from your sin and bringing you to faith in Christ. Now, I hope this makes sense to you, Matthew. The principle of reaping or sowing and reaping is true. But motive is everything. And shame on your pastor who's using that verse incorrectly to manipulate you into giving. Shame on you if your only motive for giving to God is to get something from God. The one who emptied the bank of heaven to win your soul. Does he need to give you any more? So here's what you do. You give because he gave everything for you. You give because you love God. If you're giving to get anything from him... Don't you think the God who knows everything knows your heart, knows how selfish, how fleshy that is at its core? So tell your pastor, he's been lying to you. It's not true. Then get a good church. And then watch what happens in your heart when you start giving to the Lord your time, your talent, and your treasure. When you start doing that for no other reason than you love God and you're grateful for him, then the, 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 the sowing and reaping principle comes in. You cannot give God. But it can never be your motive for giving or for serving or for using the talents God has given you. Matthew, we have to remember as Christians that we owe everything to our Jesus. Everything. Our bodies are not our own. They're bought with a price. Paul says in Romans 12 to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's your reasonable service. 
NIV, it says your spiritual act of worship. In other words, your genuine worship. And if you give to get anything, instead of giving because you've received everything, then you don't know who Jesus is. You don't understand the depth of what he's done for you. Most churches like this place a a real emphasis on giving. Maybe taking several offerings during the course of a church service. That'll make you feel really guilty. Paul says don't give under compulsion. Don't give reluctantly. But give cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver. And a cheerful giver is a generous giver who's going to be introduced to an even more generous God. You know, Matthew, at our church, our announcements regarding giving, we don't pass an offering at all. But our announcements regarding giving take a whole 20 seconds, 30 seconds tops. And people give because they love Jesus. They don't have to be prodded into giving, nor do they have to be manipulated into giving. And sadly, we've so cheapened this concept of giving, we've misrepresented God in the process. Matthew, thanks for the question. You're listening to the Word to Santa for Life, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes for the last half of the program. See you then. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the monday edition of the program um let's go to some questions now i'm going to do three related questions uh i'm getting a lot of questions um about um, the LGBT uh, agenda, Christian response. Uh, obviously, this is an issue that is at the forefront of all of our hearts and our minds as believers, and we don't know how to to accommodate the, the world that we live in, uh, and, and these questions are going to keep coming. So uh, I apologize uh, if if it seems like we're picking on this one thing, but I'm I'm simply reading the questions. My first question is from Dennis, and he says, what is your opinion of reparative therapy for gay men and women to become straight? Dennis, uh, I think it is an abomination. Uh, I think it is it is um, uh, a blight on the heart of Christ. Uh, I think we misrepresent him. We are so worldly. Um, you know, you can't pray... Uh, a sexual orientation away. Uh, you, you can't say things over and over and over. You you can't take them through 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 some sort of psychoanalysis and convince them that what they're doing is wrong. And reparative therapy misses the point. It is mean spirited. It is um, um, completely demonstrably ineffective. Uh, it does more damage to the people that we claim to be trying to help and to love. Uh, than if we did nothing at all. Uh, and and I, I think it, it ought to be anathema to everything that is attached to the name of Christ. I can't imagine Jesus walking up to somebody and saying, you know, I'm going to put you in therapy. We're going to, we're going to pray the gay away. I, I just can't imagine how unkind and, and what a horrible misrepresentation of Jesus that is. Um, only God can change a human heart. And when somebody who is uh, actively homosexual in their lifestyle um, comes to Jesus, they don't come to be straight. They come to have their sins forgiven. They come to have their hearts transformed. And unless and until we get that as a body of Christ, we're demonstrating our ignorance. We're demonstrating our ignorance not only of the people that we're to be ministering to, but we're demonstrating our ignorance of the heart of Jesus. And it always breaks my heart when we can point a finger and look out at them 
And yet we've got sin in our own lives, in our own hearts. Yes, if you love somebody, you're going to tell them actively living a homosexual lifestyle is sin. It is. God is the one who gets to make the rules, not us. He's the one who gave us our sexuality. He's the one who gave us the gift of sex. That means he gets to make and maintain the rules. And when we surmise that by somebody saying a prayer and being talked to in an intense counseling session or sessions, plural, that we can change him, we're way too full of ourselves. Only the Holy Spirit can change a human heart. And what they need to be delivered from, please hear this, Dennis, what they need to be delivered from is unbelief. Not from their homosexuality, They need to be delivered from unbelief. When they're delivered from unbelief and they accept Jesus Christ by faith, genuine saving faith, God will do the cleansing in their heart. Surely it is wrong to have sex outside of marriage. But why as a church aren't we doing reparative therapy to those who are in bondage to pornography or those who are cheating on their spouses? Why when our children have sex with somebody of the opposite gender? Do we sit them down and say, well, you know, you shouldn't do that, but God will forgive you. And yet when somebody has sex with somebody of the same gender, we're full of nothing but condemnation. Same-sex attraction is real. And people who are actively practicing that same-sex attraction consider it their identity. And so when we say things like, love the sinner, hate the sin, they don't understand that dichotomy. So what we do is we tell them about Jesus. Any single person who says, to be a Christian, you can't do this, before to be a Christian, you have to believe in Jesus, who loves you and proved it by dying on a cross for your sins. And he wants you to come to him where he can deliver you into that place of peace and joy, that place where your heart is forgiven. If we don't get this, we're never going to be effective at ministering to an entire and, I would add, growing segment of our population. Dennis, because we've said as a nation it's okay, it means that our children are going to believe it's okay until they get saved or unless they get saved. We've got to tell people about the one who can rescue them. And they need to be rescued from unbelief. Homosexuality is not cured by heterosexuality. Sinful sexuality in all shapes and sizes and forms is cured by repenting from the sin of unbelief and believing in Jesus Christ. It's very important. Here's a related question, anonymous. Um, uh, I don't know whether this is a man or a woman. Do you think it's possible that I can ever change from same-sex attraction to being attracted to the opposite gender? Uh, I don't know. God can do all things. But he has to do it. You can't. You can't. You can't rewire yourself. Only God can. And so here's how you give God the opportunity to do that. If that's your desire, here's how you give God the opportunity to do it. You honor God with your sexuality by remaining pure and chaste, by pursuing holiness. You know, one of the problems with this whole LGBT um, um, dialogue that we're having is that we've made our sexuality an idol. You shall have no idols before me, God said. And we've made our sexuality an idol, like we're incapable, like we're brute beasts who aren't capable of, of saying no to our, our lust. So Anonymous, if you want to change so that you can be attracted to the opposite gender, then honor God where you are. Don't give in to those thoughts of same-sex attraction. Resist the temptation. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
But if you don't flee from the temptations, I always think of Joseph when I talk about this. Joseph, who um, was a virile, young, strong, handsome man. Uh, Potiphar's wife, remember she was married to a eunuch? She was sexually frustrated. She wanted Joseph. She tempted him repeatedly. Finally, she seized upon that opportunity when they were alone. said, come and lie with me. And he ran from her. He fled the scene of temptation. Anonymous, you need to flee the scene of temptation. Let Jesus be enough for you. And don't make your relationship with him about your sexuality. Instead, make your relationship with him about getting closer to him, becoming more like him. And if and when you do that, then God will do marvelous work in your life and in your heart. And who knows, maybe it will be to change your, your, your sexual attraction. But even if he doesn't, then what I promise you is God's grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is sufficient for you. A third related question. Let me give you phone numbers again. We'd like to have some phone calls in the time we have left. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. The third related question is, what would you say to a gay Christian who knows he's called to ministry, perhaps as a pastor? Well, I would say to you as a professing gay Christian, is that you need to reevaluate what it means to be a Christian. Similar to the answer above, you've, you've got to be devoted to personal holiness. You cannot be actively sexual with somebody you're not married to, and if you say, well, I'm married to a man now, or I'm married to a woman now, in this case you're a man, the, the question uh, at least infers that, wanting to be a pastor. Um, no, it has to be the marriage that God ordains, between one man and one woman, and if you're not married in a manner that pleases the Lord, then he's not calling you to be a pastor. If you're bombarded with these thoughts about, well, I know this is my calling, I know this is my calling, then you need to repent and get right with God. You, you've got to stop acting out on your sexual urges. It is entirely possible for somebody who is uh, orientation is for the same gender to be celibate. And in fact, if you're celibate, Paul says that's a better thing. He himself lived a celibate life. Once having been married, his family almost certainly disowned him upon his conversion to Christ. And he said that being celibate gives him the opportunity to give all of his energy to Jesus, being unconcerned about the cares of another person. He can be concerned only about the affairs of the Lord. So you've got this battle going on, and you need not to be, listen to the world. Those who say you can be a gay Christian, because you can't. The Bible says that people who live that lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, to be fair, and this question is also anonymous, to be uh, fair to you, anonymous, there's all kinds of things. You can't be a, a, a live a lifestyle of drunkenness. You can't live a lifestyle of sexual promiscuity as a heterosexual. Uh, you, you can't be somebody who lives an angry life and, and, and you're always blowing off at people. There, there are a lot of things that, that the Bible says clearly in the New Testament, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if God has touched your heart and he's calling you to be a pastor, then you've got to renounce any sexuality outside of the confines of a godly biblical marriage. Period. And pursue holiness. If you're unwilling to do that, two things are true. One, you're going to miss out on a whole lot that God has for you. But if you're unwilling to do it, and he knows, the second is that it's not the Holy Spirit who's calling you. A lifestyle of sexual promiscuity, and I don't care if that's a committed, monogamous relationship with someone you're not married to, is off-limits 
for a man who's called to be a pastor. And shame, shame, shame on us. So many of us who are pastors of God's flock who've been caught living secret sexually immoral lives, those men will answer to God. So choose today, anonymous. Are you a Christian or are you gay? Christian is the noun. Gay is the adjective. Which are you? If you're a Christian, pursue holiness. Devour his word. Dig in and find out how much he loves you and how many you want how he wants to use you to love his people. And to trade the, the privileged life that I enjoy as a pastor. To trade that life for sexual pleasure is unthinkable. Unthinkable. So we're going to keep getting those questions. Moms, dads, we're going to keep having to deal with this in your own families. We need to change our heart to match his. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Last week we had an active phone. Today, this week, starting off a little quiet. Here is not a related question, but I think it fits. Jesse wants to know, is it okay if I want to remain single? I'm content without a man in my life, but so many in the church make me feel like something is wrong with me. Jesse, let me apologize for the people in the church, those among us who make you feel like something is wrong. I just said in my response to the last question that the Apostle Paul was a single man. Timothy, his successor, was single. There's nothing wrong with being single. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 says it's the best way to be so you can wholeheartedly be devoted to Jesus. And if People who are Christians, people in your church, are trying to fix you up with people. They keep asking, when are you going to get married? And aren't you tired of being alone? God has somebody out there for you. Find a really polite way, a nice way of saying, shut up. And tell him, you know what? I am content with my husband, Jesus. If he ever wants to bring somebody in my life, well, I love him, so I'm going to say yes. But... Right now, all I know is that my focus is completely on Him and I'm not lonely because I'm not alone. And no doubt, Jesse, you've seen a whole bunch of people in your church who are married and their lives and their marriages are miserable. Yeah, being single is not so bad sometimes. Now, let me just say this to everybody, not to you, Jesse, but to everybody. Um... If you're single and want to be married, God says that's a good thing. So there's no wrong thing here. What you've got to do is decide what your thing is. What is God's plan for you? And if his plan for you is to be married, uh, you follow Jesus, you stay with Jesus, you learn to be content in your singleness, and one day that man will pop right up in your face or that woman will pop right up in your face. But if you're okay being single and you're serving God effectively, you're not missing out on anything at all. And so we've got to decide, is Jesus really enough? Is His grace sufficient? Or isn't it? And for the rest of us who are married and we're making the Jesses of this world feel like something's wrong with them, we need to stop that. Shame on us. Shame on us. We need to Remember that people with these kinds of issues, whether it's being single or same-sex attraction, uh, these aren't broken people. These are people who are sinners, at least in the second example. But the single man or woman who's serving God with all of his or her heart and doing so with a smile on their face, they don't need us to interfere in their lives. So just rejoice and thank God for them. Jesse, I hope that encourages you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. How are we doing on time here? Got about six, seven minutes. 
Evelyn says, in John 4, why did Jesus say he had to go through Samaria? He was God and didn't have to do anything. Well, Evelyn, he really did. Now, remember, Jesus was a man under orders. Philippians 2 says that he, uh, he, he let go of his deity, not that he stopped being God, but he let go of his authority. He put himself under the authority of his Father so that he could teach us how to walk under the authority of his Father. Now, we have the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. So he had to do what his father told him to do. Not only that, he said, going even further, that he only did what he saw his father do, and he only said what he heard his father say. So Jesus never had an independent thought. Imagine how humiliating we would consider that as, as, as normal human beings if we were never permitted to have an independent thought. For 33-plus years, Jesus never had an independent thought. He did what his father told him to do. Nothing more and nothing less. So he had to go through Samaria. Now, I love the story in Samaria because it's so instructive for us. He had to go. Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews. His disciples were shocked when Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. That's King James. So why did he go? Well, there was a Samaritan woman he had an appointment with. And I want you to think about something. A Samaritan was a half-Jew and half-Gentile. They were the product of the Assyrian invasion, the Assyrians impregnating and taking Jewish women as their wives. And a whole new race of people grew up. Now remember Jesus' ministry was pointing to the church, Jew and Gentile, in one body. Well, he had to go through Samaria because that's exactly what he had an appointment with. A Jew and a Gentile in the same body. And she needed to be saved, and she was. What a wonderful picture that is of the mission of the church. And Jesus went and saved a woman, but he also gave us direction. Thank you very, very much. I love that question. In fact, that's one of my two or three favorite stories in the Gospel of John. We're inside of five minutes, 340-9585. If you're going to call, you need to call quickly. Here's a question from Henry. Henry says, how can I take control of my thoughts? Uh, Henry, the only way you can take control of your thoughts is to immerse yourself in his word. If you immerse yourself in his word, then you're going to want to be with him because his word reveals who he is. And if you're with Jesus, then by his power, he'll take control of your thoughts. Now we're told to take our thoughts captive, make them obedient to Christ. So obedience then becomes the key. And the key to being obedient is power. When we take that first step of obedience, Henry, the power of the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 5.32, comes upon us in this enormous power that enables us to, to take control of our thoughts. Here's the problem that we have. When we have these thoughts that are plaguing us, it's often true that we give ourselves over to those thoughts we think about nothing else we think about nothing else we think about nothing else and then we act out on those thoughts and because it's successful the enemy is going to come and he's going to keep bringing those thoughts and bringing those thoughts time and time again and because we think about them over and over and over we're going to keep falling over and over and over so here's what we do we stay so close to Jesus that when those thoughts come, we can identify the source of those thoughts. There's nothing sinful about an evil thought. It comes from an outside source, the enemy. So when you have that evil thought, simply tell Jesus, I'd rather be with you than spend time with these evil thoughts. So I want to talk to you. You take care of the evil thought. And he'll do that. Now, you may have to do that many, many times a day. We've given Satan an opportunity repeatedly, Henry, to, 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 to do this because it works so well. So you have a Bible with you. And when the evil thoughts come, you open it and start reading it. And I don't mean just open it and read wherever you open it to, but I mean read it, study it. Start at the beginning of a book and end at the end of the book. Don't have to do it all at one setting, of course. But just pick up where you finished reading the last time and read it. Now, people say, well, I can't carry my Bible everywhere. You carry phones everywhere. You can have your Bible on your phone. 
when the devil sees that every time he plagues you with these evil thoughts, you're going to open God's word, he's going to stop doing it. Another suggestion is when you start getting these evil thoughts, start praying for other people. Start praying for other people. When the devil sees that you're going to pray when prompted by those evil thoughts, he's going to try to find another way to attack you. Now, he's never going to stop trying to attack you, Henry. But that's the way you take care of those evil thoughts. Last question for the day. Uh, We're inside of two minutes from Terry. Um, She says... Uh, how you know, can a feminist be a true Christian? Uh, Terry, the answer is, of course. But if uh, upon conversion, a feminist no longer needs to be a feminist because that woman is then a daughter of the king. You see, we need to take our agenda out of our relationship with God. We need, as true believers, to agree with God. And Jesus loves you so much that he'll take care of you. You don't have to take care of yourself. And in fact, Terry, when you become a Christian, you forfeit your right to having any rights at all. Instead of standing up for what you want to be true or what you've always believed to be true, we have another master in heaven. His name is Jesus. We stand up for what he wants us to stand for. So the idea is that we lose our identity. And so to be a feminist sort of makes you a rebel against authority. So don't worry about feminism. Instead, worry about being a Christian and loving Jesus with all of your heart. I promise you that will set you free. Hey, I appreciate you tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Remember tonight, our Sweet Summer Devotion series continues, ladies. Elise Shank, there's a name you can pray for. You can watch it live at calvarysa.com. That's 7 o'clock in the sanctuary here at Calvary Chapel. God bless you. See you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.